You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 26 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Wednesday, the 24th of February, 2016. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And Asha King. Good afternoon, internet world. And we're back after a uh, slightly controversial week, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the least. It's been an interesting week. It I've been, uh, so, well, first of all, thank you very much to everyone who emailed. Almost all of the emails were actually really, really nice. And do you know what? The, the biggest criticism we ended up getting was that we took the show down. Yeah, yeah, and I would say probably of all the emails we received, and I, and I did read all of them. I tried to reply personally to all of them, um, but yeah, the, the biggest uh, criticism was that we took the show down, and yeah, possibly that wasn't the right thing to do. I don't know. Um, yeah. A lot of people emailed in saying, "Oh, you know, you should have stuck your ground and left the show up," but I kind of felt like looking back over history, the the general public or, or the internet is never like oh well if someone's got all of their facts right in that case we'll give them the benefit of the doubt yeah. it's, it's not a reliable uh, <laughs> no. it's not a reliable critic is it the yeah, internet using internet comment streams as as judge and jury like isn't yeah not the best barometer for those of you listeners that have missed out on all the fun and excitement we recorded an episode a couple of weeks ago which we spoke about some topics that proved to be a little more controversial than we thought. There's two subjects that we covered because a lot of people have got in touch asking about them mm-hmm. uh, and, and asking me more about them. And, you know, and I, I did like that 20-minute piece that took about 16 hours or so to research and yeah. I had all my notes in front of me and everything. When I was researching, I was really nervous about getting the science wrong and no one actually wrote in saying, oh, you didn't, you know, take account of this or that study. N- not one email actually came in to correct the science. So I felt like, well, that was really positive. There are people out there who know far more about it than me. And if, if you're interested in finding out more about conspiracy theories and all that kind of thinking and stuff, the You Are Not So Smart podcast is awesome. That's all about psychology. Uh, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast is fantastic if you just want science news that's just interested in putting the science out there, but without any kind of ideology or angle or political slant to it. It's just like, here's the science that we think is cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's actually my personal favorite podcast. I love it. And if you're interested in finding out more about GMOs specifically, uh, Kevin Falter, who is the head of horticultural studies at Florida University, I think, he has a website called GMO Answers. And that's a brilliant place to go if you want to find out more about GMOs. And actually, just before I came on air, I noticed that the latest episode of the Skeptics Guide to Universe is Stephen Novella interviewing Kevin Falter. I haven't heard it. I don't know what they're talking about, but uh, definitely that'd be interesting. Yeah. And uh, if you want to learn more about Kelly Slater, it appears that the whole internet is an expert. So, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I must say that one of the reasons I took the show down was because we got those first few emails that came in that were sort of a little bit negative, And I thought, this is the start of a landslide. And as it happened, it wasn't. It was just those couple of emails and then everything else was really positive. Yeah. But but I did when I was looking at it, I was like, well, hang on a minute. I mean, I did say in that article that thirty three percent of people, yeah. you know, think that there's no concerns about GMOs. So even seventy percent of our listeners statistically probably disagreed quite heavily with what we were saying. <laughs> yeah, and a hundred percent of people love Kelly Slater as a surfer. So I thought, look, just statistically, if I'm going to be true to sticking to the evidence, I should probably shut up and take this down. And I'm so impressed that actually it seems that our listenership 
is incredibly scientifically savvy. And people weren't even, a few people wrote in and said that was really interesting. Most people wrote in and said, yeah, we, we knew the science already. We just were really pleased that someone was saying it. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I've got a whole, I, it's interesting sitting here and recording because you really don't know who you're talking to. Yes. And having had so many emails this week and so much feedback and, and communication with the listeners, I've got a whole new respect for our listenership. And, uh, Wow, I, l- I love you guys. Listeners, you're amazing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, we all started doing this podcast as kind of a fun thing on the side. We all work full-time jobs, but it's crazy to see how many people listen to us. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I love it. And actually, the, the other thing that it, uh, it made me realize is, is that a lot of people who wrote in sort of said, look, you're pitching yourself against Kelly Slater like it's you versus him, which isn't the case. Uh, I have a huge amount of respect for Kelly Slater. What I actually said was he's he's not my hero anymore. But like, there's a lot of people I love that are, are also not my heroes. I mean, I love you guys, but, you know, you're not my heroes. <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> what? I, How dare you? I felt a little hypocritical because right after we did the debunking of Kelly Slater, I, uh, I realized that one of my last Instagram photos was just me fanboying with Kelly Slater. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's <laughs> an amazing oh, surfer. I've got a lot of respect and a lot of time for him. Yeah, you know, he's a just, good guy. But we all hold beliefs that perhaps we haven't looked at properly. I'm exactly. sure I do too. So other than, uh, other than answering emails all week, what have you been up to, Ray? Well, I've been surfing my Evo a lot. Mm-hmm. and you, How are you getting on with it? I really love it. Yeah, I mean, I've I love been... it so much that... All, I've got all of these other boards. I've got 10 years worth of Almerics that I've just, <laughs> I'm just going to give them away, I think. I, mean, I might, really, I might I, be first in line for uh, some of those step-ups. Yeah, it's, it, I've been really enjoying riding mine the last, the last few days. It, it has been fun trying to figure out something that is that much different to the regular board. You know, I, similar to you, I've got a whole stack of boards. And I, right now I've got two boards that are really making me think when I'm in the water. And the first is my Bonza, which uh, I actually had a really good surf on this morning. And the second is that Evo where I'm really just having to, th- like not just go out there and surf, but actually think about my body position and what I'm doing in the water to get the most out of it. It's funny because those are two pretty, I guess, opposite designs historically that one came from the 1970s and one came from you know the, the last year or so of development. Or well, did it. Or did it. Yeah, see, the interesting thing is actually both of those designs the, the thing that does tie them together is they're both designs that really are trying to to think outside about the, the box about the flow right. of water along the bottom of the board and using that flow of water as efficiently as possible. Yeah, the Evo, it's just like done it. It's it's. I'm, I usually surf a 27 litre S shortboard. Mm-hmm. My 5.4 Evo is 29 litres. Mm-hmm. It turns like the 24 litre Taj board that I haven't been able to surf for like five years because I'm just a bit bigger <laughs> now. And yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's fantastic. And when well, that day we surfed it up at our little heavy closeout beach break oh, that, that we occasionally get barreled at. Yeah, I mean, it held so well in, in barreling overhead surf and it didn't feel coming in, it, like I was paddling it like I was paddling a fish into a wave. And then I went into the bottom turn and it just gripped and it didn't slip at all. It felt completely solid and I didn't even have it set as a quad. I had it as a as a thruster. Mm-hmm. I really want to give it a go. I really want to try the Evo now. I, well, last night when we were out surfing at sunset, I very nearly let you grab a few waves in it and, and I was just having such a good time. Then you realize, like, no, 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 I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Okay, uh, rolling on to the news, and it's been a relatively quiet couple of weeks other than the controversy that the Surf Simply podcast seems to have caused. Yeah, I love it. We've been the, uh, we've been the spice in the surf media. Um, I guess the big story, we finished uh, episode 25, for those of you that did manage to catch it, uh, talking about the 
Titans of Maverick contest that was going to run. It did run. Nick Lamb won the contest, which I mean I would have to say it didn't really deliver. There were a couple yeah. of there were a couple of good waves per heat, but it really was a very very slow contest to watch. Yeah, first off, hats off to Nick Lamb. I mean, he is a charger. He's pretty young. I think he's in his young 20s. But the contest, I was a bit of a dud for me. I, yeah. The waves weren't very interesting. I had a bit of a hangover from all the Jaws action this, this year. Well, we and, really the, and the Maverick swell from just before the Super yeah, Bowl. Yeah, it, it was perfect. Incredible. Uh, it was right after the Eddie got canceled. So it was supposed to be the week of big wave surfing. And it just ended up being like a... Eh. A little bit flat. So yeah, anyway, well, well done to Nick Lamb. Having said that, if you go to Red Bull's page, which we'll link to in the show notes, and then if you scroll halfway down the page, there's a little video that's only about 15 seconds long. Just call it. Watch the wave that won it for Nick Lamb. All right, just watch that, listeners. The takeoff on that wave is insane. Yeah. He, he airdrops and lands it, you know, about he airdrops about 10 feet down the front of a Mavericks wave on like yeah. a, what an eight or nine foot gun yeah lands it disappears in the white water comes out the white water disappears into the white water again doesn't actually make it all the way around to the shoulder but no I mean, I mean that that did not disappoint his his win was very very well deserved in a in a slow contest of of I you know maybe slightly subpar waves mm-hmm. he caught an absolute bomb uh, it's incredible so uh sticking with the big waves fingers crossed as we record uh, tomorrow on Thursday, fingers crossed, we're going to get the Eddie running. They've sort of called it. I mean, obviously, that the, they always make the final call for the Eddie Icow on the the morning of the event, but the, the scaffolding's being built. The athletes are on the aeroplanes. Yeah, as of an hour ago, they've uh, they've given it the green light. I feel like they've they've got to run it, really, don't they? Yeah. It. This has been an incredible winter of waves in Hawaii. There's been great swell after great swell after great swell, and they haven't run it, haven't run it, haven't run it. And I think if they finish, the the waiting period's got, what, another five days on it? Yeah, this is it. If they don't run it in what is going to be remembered as one of the great winters of surf in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. like all the legitimacy of that contest kind of goes out the window. Yeah, I like the idea that looking at this swell, hopefully it's almost a little bit too big for uh, for Waimea Bay. Yeah. Because I want to see some people just go for closeout sets in the middle of the bay. Yeah. Actually, that was another, uh, just as a little aside, I was looking at a study recently about concussions in NFL football. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I won't go into it, but basically concussions happen a lot more than you think. And when mm, they yeah. look at retired footballers, what's, what do you guys call them? Football player? Football player. Okay. Yeah. So that, anyway, yeah, when they when they retire, they have the, the, these reports repeated concussions that, that cause all kinds of oh, symptoms had- that people weren't connecting before including Alzheimer-like symptoms and dementia yeah. and uh, and you can't see it until you, you know, you've had an autopsy and basically the rule is that you need far longer to rest after a concussion than they previously thought and if yeah. you have another head impact after a concussion it can be really bad which, which kind of led you know going back to that like what will we look at that people do in the future you know what are we doing now and when we look back it, it, it will just think it's crazy I think surfing a lot of these events without helmets. Like yeah. People, I think people will look at surfing Chopu and Pipe and some of these waves without helmets on in the same way that we look at guys driving around on motorbikes without helmets on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there, was a, there was a really good um, podcast, Freakonomics, where they were talking about that. And the, the interesting unintended consequence was that, that when they tried to protect the athletes in football and made them wear helmets, that that was when there was a huge increase in concussions because the guys were hitting so much harder because they could because they could but yeah i think looking back on it how little 
we protect ourselves as surfers you know how uncool it is to wear sunglasses how uncool it is to wear a helmet how uncool it is to wear a long sleeve rash guard i think it's astounding that the level that we have allowed being cool to uh <laughs> I, I loved watching you paddle out the other evening and uh, you had your sunglasses on you had your hat on you had your gopro in your mouth yep. i think you, you had your trace on your board and i was riding the board of the moment the evo yeah, yeah. I, you, you, just, you look like the full the, you, the only thing you didn't have was, was you weren't wearing any Google Glass yeah. <laughs> that was the only I, thing I think lacking. ideally I should have had one of the drones just following me. although <laughs> yeah. actually Marine was flying the drone that evening so she was filming me <laughs> oh, that's true yeah, yeah. There was definitely no one was accusing you of looking cool no no that is that is very true um, okay moving on and I guess on the subject of being cool we had the Simmer Awards last week that was a slick segue Harry that was a slick segue wasn't it Um, so the Simmer Awards it's the Surf Industry Manufacturers Association this is basically the trade association for the surf industry and every year they do a little awards ceremony for just the, the, the brands and the products that they feel have made the most impact we spoke about it last year the main reason actually I think it's interesting to touch on this year there were there was nothing overly surprising I would say in the the hypto crypto one surfboard a year for the ninth year in a row yeah maybe 10th <laughs> yes uh, maybe 15th I don't know yeah the hypto crypto did very well I thought it was cool that Visla won men's apparel brand of the year I don't know they kind of have a different energy in the the, the surf industry they do a lot of cool collaborations with companies I really like and I don't know it's good to see them uh mm-hmm. awarded for that yeah, and to see a, a company, you know, you see, you know, particularly all of those companies that are in that breakthrough brand bracket, you know, I, not that I've been involved with it, but I've seen the amount of work over the last couple of months just to get some board shorts made and to see, you know, these brands come from nothing and to actually create a public image and a following and yeah, incredibly. A company like Visla, it's incredible the impact they made right away. I mean, they launched in North America, South America, Europe. Australia, all in pretty much one fell swoop. I mean, their their board shorts were in surf shops down here in Costa Rica a month after they launched as a brand. That's a pretty serious impact right away. Yeah, I mean, that's a level of logistics that uh, is quite amazing. Yeah. The the thing that I found interesting was that the down and out winner of the Simmer Awards was Rip Curl. They won the wetsuit of the year. They won the, the product of the year. They won women's product of the year the board short of the year tons and tons and tons of stuff and then about a week later i don't know whether any of the listeners have seen this but rip curl have fallen foul of having their products made they have a they've had their whole winter line of products made in north korea and an investigation has turned out that the conditions that their workers were working in was not Exactly ideal. Exactly ideal, yes. And so Rip Curl have sort of gone from, from top of the cloud with the Simmer Awards all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, it was. it's it's an interesting one. I mean, Rip Curl and a lot of, uh, well, most clothing companies, but specifically surf companies or any companies producing technical clothing, mm-hmm. take a great pride in being intimately involved with the production of their product. So mm-hmm. Rip Curl were then kind of backed into a corner where either they had to say, okay, we are intimately involved in our, with, with making these shorts or whatever in the way that we proclaim, in, in which case we're 
clearly guilty of knowingly using these terrible conditions or we're not in which case we're not guilty of the terrible conditions but now we can't say that we're really passionately involved with producing our products yes that's a bit of a tough one it's a, it's a hard call isn't it so that i mean that they've said that that you know they do care about it they outsourced the production to a company that then re-outsourced to this company in uh, in korea the the, uh, the investigation that actually turned it up was by the sydney morning herald which is uh, quite a well-respected newspaper in Australia, or a reasonably well-respected newspaper in Australia. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, there was there was a lot of obviously there was tons of uh, criticism of Rip Curl for this, but yeah, you know, there was one commenter who I thought made the point the where he said, "Look, Rip Curl are at fault here, but also you, the buyer, you know, you're at fault. You don't know where all of your clothes came from." I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think it's a black and white issue, and no. it's and it's entirely on one person or another. But I, I thought that that was also a good point. I mean, mm-hmm. I couldn't go through my whole wardrobe and tell you exactly what conditions all of the people were in who produced every single aspect of everything that went into all of those clothes. Yeah, I could tell you virtually none about that. <laughs> yeah, I could tell you almost nothing. Okay. We don't have a main feature for you this week, but we do have an interview, which we've sort of been sitting on for quite a long time. I've been trying to slot it in, and there's just been so much going on over the winter with all the contests and the happenings that we've really struggled to slot it into the show. So in our Christmas gift guide a few weeks ago, I recommended Waterman, The Life and Times of Duke Kanamoku by David Davis. And I'm very glad to say that David is joining us today. Thank you so much for coming on, David. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. David is a sports writer and a journalist. Uh, He has written two previous books, Showdown at Shepherd's Bush, which is the story of the 1908 Olympic marathon, and Play by Play, which is a history of Los Angeles sports photography. Waterman, then, is his third book. That's correct. Yep. Waterman is my third book. Exactly. And I think I'm right in saying that you've also written fairly regularly for Sports Illustrated, for the Smithsonian, for the Los Angeles Magazine, for the New York Times, the LA Times, the Wall Street well, Journal. I, I just to cl- yeah, just to clarify, I, I have contributed to those. I'm, I'm not I'm not currently a contributing writer except for Los Angeles Magazine and uh, Sports Letter with LA84 Foundation. So. Yep. Just to fill in the gaps then, so how did you get involved with uh, sports journalism and, and writing books about sport? Yeah, well, I had some experience as a writer and editor in college and, and high school, just, you know, as a youngster covering high school basketball and wrestling and everything and, and really loved it and was the editor of my college newspaper and uh, when I moved out to Los Angeles in 1986, I started interning at the L.A. Weekly newspaper, which was, uh, at the time, I think the second largest alternative newspaper in, in the United States. And that was really my first professional job. Um, I stayed with the Weekly for over a decade. I was managing editor, senior writer, senior editor. Actually started on sort of the editor side and then moved over to writing. I, I sort of started writing late, I guess, in, in, in some ways. And uh, went freelance in 1998. And the, the goal was always to, you know, to write books. It just took, a, it just took longer than I thought it would take. <laughs> That's great. And so what was it that particularly drew you to uh, sports history as a, a genre? Because I, I think I'm right in saying that your previous works as well have been uh, on the, the same sort of time frame as, as Waterman, you know, turn of the century uh, sporting events. Yeah, it's a good question. I'll answer it sort of two ways. The, the first being that decade that you referred to, 
or really what I like to call, it's more than a decade, but let's say the 1890s up until the First World War, up until like 1914. To me, that's just, it's just a fascinating era, not, not just in sports, but in all of society, because it seems to me, and now I'll talk specifically about sports, that's when we really start seeing the, the first stages of, of modern sports as we know it. And, and when we say that, we're, I'm talking about everything from, you know, stadium deals, uh, drug issues, performance-enhancing drug issues, the economics of sport, labor issues. Right. We can go on and on. Yeah. So a real sort of time of change within society. Exactly. And, and sport is really just starting to sort of, it's in the first stages of maturing, you know, and, and here in the United States, you know, we're getting some of the first great baseball players and in professional baseball and college football is is figuring out its you know sort of methodology um, and moving away from like rugby and and you have these first big international uh, sports events including of course the Olympics 1896 starting and you know so you, you're just starting to, to see the maturation of sports and there's some figures there that to me have been overlooked and so in a sense, my my charge has always been, you know, find a great story and write about it. And it just happens that I, I've been finding these great stories like a Duke Kahanamoku or the, the marathon race in the 1908 Olympics that I feel, you know, are, are worth telling. They're great stories. And I've been fortunate enough to, to, to be able to uh, have book contracts to, you know, to, to delve into them at length. So, David, uh, what kind of first inspired you to write specifically about Duke? I mean, he's such a an important figure in surfing, but he's been really overlooked. What kind of brought you to him? Well, uh, you know, Harry referred to the, the previous book, uh, Showdown at Shepherd's Bush, which was about the 1908 Olympics and specifically the marathon race. And and in that book, I, I followed the three major race, you know, runners, uh, Durando Pietri, of course, from Italy, Johnny Hayes, Irish-American lad from New York City who ended up winning the gold medal, and Tom Longboat, a Canadian um, Indian. And in the course of, of doing that reporting, Johnny Hayes ended up coaching the U.S. runners in 1912 Olympics. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I was just doing my due diligence as a reporter, just seeing what was, you know, what happened in the 1912 Olympics and with Johnny Hayes and, you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, the most famous athlete there was, was Jim Thorpe, um, at least, you know, from the American perspective. And there's been a bunch of stuff written about Jim Thorpe, several biographies. And the second biggest star for the American team was Duke Kahanamoku. And, you know, when I looked around the landscape, yes, there's been some some decent, some good articles and, and quite a bit, obviously, from the surfing perspective. But nobody really, it seemed to me, had, had sort of put it all together in a book, yeah, that, a published book. That seemed really interesting to me that nobody's really done an in-depth bibliographical account of Duke before when he's, you know, such a huge figurehead mm -hmm. in surfing as well as swimming. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've been, you know, pe people have asked me sort of why, why, why do you think that is? I, I can come up with a, a couple of uh, possibilities, but I, but I don't, I honestly don't know. But part of it, I think is that he is, was such a big figure. And I, I'm going to claim naivete. I didn't realize how huge he was when I started yeah. in on this. 
And I think that can be intimidating, you know, to some people. And, and they figure, oh, you know, he's like a Babe Ruth or something. Oh, he's been done. A, he's done, been done before that assumption. Well, not really. So I was, I was the naive guy to say, hey, let me give it a whack. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm glad you, uh, you tackled the, the task. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the, the other thing I think maybe a little more, a, a little more subtle, but, but I think your listeners who, who know Hawaii maybe can relate to this, which is to say Duke is so big in Hawaii. He is on such a pedestal, frankly, that I don't think there were a lot of people who wanted to sort of challenge that and to delve into who is, you know, who is the real human being, the, fresh, the flesh and blood behind the image, behind the statue that you see on Waikiki. So how long did it take you to research the book? And what were some of the, the hardest things to research? What were some of the hardest stories to, to pull out from the legend? Yeah, I, I started researching the book in 2011, and that entailed going to Hawaii, that was the, the first of my trips to Hawaii. Uh, you know, I live in Southern California now, uh, but, but, so that was my first trip. I went over there a bunch of times, uh, did research up and down Southern California, uh, up and down the coast of California, east coast of, of the United States, wherever he really landed and had impact. I mean, I, di- I didn't unfortunately get to Australia, and I didn't get to, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the Olympic cities, but you know, the, certainly it's a lot easier now than it used to be, you know, with the internet, you can, you can access some articles and so forth. The biggest challenges, frankly, was Duke himself being in, in two ways. First of all, he, his life was so, you know, huge, but it, it, it spanned such a long era. I mean, he's born in 1890, uh, you know, Hawaii's an independent monarchy at that time. It's an independent nation. You know, he dies in 1968, you know, it's rock and roll in Vietnam. So you're, you're spanning this, in, you know, incredible era. So, so it's just a lot of stuff. Yeah. And then, so that's one aspect of Duke's life. The other aspect is he was a very uh, uh, reticent, stoic man. Um, he wasn't someone who, you know, blabbed about his feelings about losing a race to Johnny Weissmuller to the press. You know, he would he would make a quick, maybe a a, a, a one line joke and, and sort of move on. You know, he would say, "Hell, oh, I I lost to Tarzan or something." You know, um, but it, unfortunately, we never got that sort of deep deep interviews by journalists back then. It was, obviously, it was a different era, so that that was a challenge. Just that the the sort of first hand material from Duke about how he felt when this happened or that happened in his life. So you talked about one to go kind of into the life of the guy behind the statue, and you're one of the first people to ever really do that. Did you find anything that was a bit surprising uh, about this Mm kind of larger-than-life guy, anything that would kind of catch people off guard? Right. Well, I I think, again, for me, again, to show off my ignorance or naivete, whatever you want to call it, I mean, I didn't realize just how big he was, Um, just what a big figure. And by Mm -hmm. that... You know, I mentioned, you know, this span of life. I mean, he's, you can look at his life and, you know, you, you, you can trace the, you know, history of the Olympics. You can trace the history of surfing. You can trace the history of Hawaii. Um, you can even trace, frankly, you know, the, the history of sports celebrity and, and, and branding, as we would call it today. Yeah. You know? um, so that's, that surprised me, just this, you know, massive figure. 
I, I think the other thing that surprised me, and I've, I've written, you know, over the years, I've written about sports and race and the intersection of that, and, and I think it's always a relevant topic. And going into Kahanamoku's life, I, I, I didn't anticipate seeing that pop up a lot, and it did. And both in his early years and his years in Hawaii, um, being a, you know, a dark-skinned Pacific Islander, you know, Polynesian race, he encountered racism and prejudice in in Hawaii, on the mainland, here in the United States, and other places. And I, I didn't necessarily anticipate that. And, uh, you know, one of my, you know, in, in a sense, conclusions is that has been overlooked about Duke's life, that he was a race pioneer in long before the likes of a Joe Lewis here in the United States or Jackie Robinson, yeah. Jesse Owens, you know, who come along in the 30s and 40s. You know, Duke is dealing with this stuff in, you know, 1912 and, and on. Yeah, and uh, I mean, what was the from that issue with with racism? You know, what what was kind of the social status? I get uh, I guess of the native Hawaiians. Um, how how were they perceived in Hawaii? But I guess more importantly, given how much Duke ended up traveling, how how was he perceived on on the mainland? Right. Well, I'll I'll take the uh, the, the second part first to, to answer that question. Uh, we. Again, Duke didn't really talk about this himself, but we have a, we have accounts from people who knew him and were friends with him that he was refused service at restaurants because people, I guess, thought he was African American mm -hmm. and they were not serving African Americans at that place. Right. Somebody had written that Duke had surfed in Florida after the 1912 Olympics. You know, reputable scholars. I searched all over for that. I could not find anything. Yeah. And it, it, it seems to me that Duke avoided the South of the United States because of racism. The, the other thing, and this surprised me, I've, I've lived in Southern California since 86. I didn't know that way back when um, uh, the beaches, the quote-unquote public beaches of California, many of them were restricted. And they were, whether it was by law or just by custom, Minorities were not allowed, or non-whites were not allowed to to access those beaches. Same with some of the public swimming pools. There, there's a. I live near Pasadena, California, and I, you know everybody knows that it's. Uh, you know it has the Rose Bowl Stadium. It has Rose Bowl. Yeah, it has a beautiful, beautiful aquatic uh, place as well. Great swimming pool. Well, back then, apparently, and and we have this not just not necessarily from Duke, but from others. Uh, non-whites were allowed to access that pool one day a week. That's wow. it. One day only. Yeah. And then as soon the day it was after, they would drain the pool. That's yeah. insane. And then refill it with water for the normal, you know, normal meaning white customers. That was the that was the custom. And uh, the great diver, the great Olympian diver Sammy Lee, who is you know he's actually still alive, but. I think he won gold medals in like 48 and 52 yeah. and later helped coach Greg Luganis. Um, Sammy Lee grew up in Southern California and he would tell stories about that. So it went on. So, it, you know, Duke and others had yeah. to deal with that. And then you, you asked about Hawaii. There, there's a couple things. And, and it's in, in some ways it's more subtle yeah. um, mm -hmm. because Hawaii is, a, you know, is more, let's say, of a melting pot. And, you know, it's a smaller, you know, it's island. It's, it's smaller. So there was more. There wasn't uh, overt racism a lot of times, but 
But, for instance, we know that when Duke, the Outrigger Canoe Club, the big club, when it started, it excluded minorities, and including Duke. And they went on to form the Hui Nalu, which was basically the first surf club. And uh, so that was the start of it. Um, it, it. It was a different form of racism, but there were certain things and, and levels that he wasn't going to attain until he became famous. And then things changed and doors were opened. So the other thing I found really interesting was this real need for Duke to retain his amateur status. And it's something that's maybe gone now from the, the modern Olympics. But back then there was this real divide between a, a professional athlete who made money from performances and the amateur athlete uh, who, you know, really the, the gentleman athlete who was just just in it for the sport. Um, could you just explain, you know, how that sat, how that sat within the time and, and what brought that about? The, the analogy I do is it's sort of the, it was the third rail as, as we would say here, or, or, you know, in a sense, it's like performance enhancing drugs today in the sense that amateur and professional were, were too distinct. Well, it, it started really as, as you mentioned as class. I mean, it was, it, it, the professionals were seen as lower class or, or it, it, let's say in, in America, immigrants and so, and so forth. So you mentioned in the book the, you know, the history of the formation of the Olympics and how it really was born out of a, a real class divide. Uh, and they, they were really intended for gentlemen athletes, for people who could afford to lay around and just, just you know, train on a, on a rolling basis. Uh, whereas for the more working class athletes, it really was a problem because they couldn't use their talents and their abilities to create any money. Uh, so, it, you know, left them with a real dilemma of, of how do you even, you know, how do you make a living? Right. How do you make a living training, training to be an elite athlete? You know, uh, yeah. It, when, when you weren't able to monetize your athletic skill, I mean, like he couldn't be a swim coach. Yeah, and you can, you know, you can almost understand if you're going down that route of amateur athletics of saying, okay, you can't earn money from swimming, you know, from, from teaching swimming or from swimming performances. But, you know, he couldn't even uh, get work as a lifeguard or, or anything that they viewed as being connected to it. I think there was, there was one point where he was involved in a disciplinary hearing and a review uh, because he received payment for uh, endorsing the varnish that he put on his surfboard. And, you know, right. it, it just seems crazy that, that something so disconnected from competitive swimming could nearly have cost him his amateur career. Right. Well, I mean, it, it, to go not not to go too deeply into the into the you know history of the Olympics, but but it's actually relevant because obviously, hey, we may have surfing in the Olympics pretty soon, right? Pretty yeah. soon. Uh, so, but you know, I mean, look who started the Olympics. Uh, you know, it was a French baron. You know, the, this was a nobleman. You know, and and to them, it was. You know, you do a little horseback riding on, you know, in the morning and do some fencing in the afternoon, you know, and, and then you go to the club and, and play cards with your with your fellow noblemen. Um, that was sort of their ideal of sport. You know, this, oh, we we don't have to really train. We're just we just go out and <laughs> and uh, get our polo ponies and, and, and tarry forth, so to speak. Yeah, and they didn't realize that in America things were getting very different, and you had working class kids like starting with like a Johnny Hayes, who was an Irish American 
lad who was basically an orphan. And, you know, they looked at sport to go, A, they loved the competition, but B, it was like, hey, this is a way to get ahead. Mm -hmm. And this is a way to make your name for yourself. And so there was this conflict in the early days and, and up until like the 70s, really, uh, this conflict between how can an athlete, an elite athlete like Duke, from working class stock, as you say, I mean, Duke was a high school dropout. So how is he supposed to make a living and still train and still represent, you know, the United States and or Hawaii, you know, in big international meets? And that never really got resolved. Um, and frankly, Duke took money, like all elite athletes at that time, they had to make accommodations. You know, they took money under the table. I mean, it, it seems like Duke got a, a huge amount of assistance through his professional career with, you know, from the people of Hawaii, but particularly from sort of civic leaders yeah. they, they, rallying. Uh, yeah, they, they it, well, it's a, first of all, it's a complicated issue because, because of the amateurism. So they were sort of, wink, yeah. you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, that, that they were giving Duke some money. And for them, talking about sort of the power brokers who were, you know, the Howley power brokers, you know, to them, Duke was an investment. When, when he went to the Olympics and or other, you know, to Australia in 1914, 1915, he was representing the islands, okay? And yeah. by that, it's mm -hmm. tourism and, and commercial interests. And, you know, the, in, in Duke, they had this physical representation of the ideal, you know, Polynesian Hawaiian. You know, this great-looking, athletic humble gracious man and that was their investment and that was a relationship that in in some ways bedeviled duke for the rest of his life because on the one hand it, he needed the money and he needed the support and and he loved to represent hawaii you know on the yeah. other on the other hand there was he was in their in their pocket to some degree they bought him a house they put it in a trust but, you know, he had a house for his family in Waikiki starting in 1913. And that, yeah. that was something, honestly, he should have probably been not able to compete in the 19, you know, 20 and 24 Olympics. All the way through the book, you, 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 there's, there's sort of this, this flirtation with the idea of turning pro and, and the, the, the consequences of them not being able to compete in the Olympics. And it it seems like there were a lot of people that had a vested interest either way in his either turning pro or, or remaining amateur. My f I sort of felt almost by the time I finished the book, like maybe he would have been better off, you know, turning pro at the, at the height of his prowess, at the height of his abilities. You know, maybe, maybe he would have been less in people's pockets and actually made a little bit of money for himself during those earlier years. How did you feel at the end of your research? Yeah, no, I know. I, I concur. I mean, but but having said that, you know, what would what could he have done? Um, I mean, certainly in the early days, there wasn't I mean, when I'm saying like the first Olympics, 1912 and even yeah. 1920, there really wasn't sort of an infrastructure for, let's say, you know, Duke Kahanamoku swim school or, or you know, the Aloha where right. he's there when that's starting, but it's not quite mature or developed yet so it, it would you know it was just what could he have done question mark that was sort of he never resolved that but I, yeah. I mean I mean possibilities absolutely 
Yeah, I guess it's interesting looking back from from our perspective now where where career athletes and and professional endorsements are so normal that it it, maybe for him, had he turned pro, it would have been short term money. But then his fame would have dropped away very quickly because he's no longer Duke Kanemoku, the, the Olympic athlete. He's the guy that's trying to sell you stuff. Right. And and by the way, also be aware of, again, the, the race aspect. Yes. Um, there are not a lot of companies that are going to have endorsements with someone who's not white. Yes. Let's be frank. Mm. And, it's, and it's, the, it's the exact same thing that Duke encountered in Hollywood. I mean, he was brought over to Hollywood to be a, a, a movie star. And no Hollywood producer... Uh, you know, in the studio system, was going to give to Kahanamoku the starring role to, you know, be the big hero and get the girl. Yeah. It, it just wasn't feasible. And so you have to sort of wonder how, what, what was his limits or not. And, you know, he wasn't a businessman. He wasn't really what he was interested in. Yeah. And oftentimes he let others sort of control that aspect. Yeah. Too often to his detriment. So... Very interesting. The um, just going back to to Duke swimming career, and I guess for me, I found that you know my background is obviously surfing, so I was aware of of his reputation within the surf world and and aware of his his history, I guess, within surfing. But the the thing I found interesting, I wasn't aware how big and how important he was to the early swimmers. You know how much of a landmark figure he is to competitive swimming. Yeah, agreed. I mean, and that was, again, I think what I think what happened was sort of towards the end of Duke's life. um, I write about this, you know, in the late 50s, early and and 60s, you know, surfing becomes, you know, starts getting really big worldwide. I think we can all agree on that. And, you know, it's sexy. You've got Gidget. You've got the Beach Boys and Dick Dale. And it's becoming part of culture. And. You know, Duke gets sort of aligned with surfing in a good way, in a positive way. Like, hey, here's our, you know, here's our originator. Here's our godfather. Yeah. And I think that image sort of overwhelmed swimming because, let's face it, nobody really cares about swimming until the Olympics yeah. for two weeks. Exactly. Yeah. The thing I found interesting from my aspect, knowing him as, you know, the founder of modern surfing, he's really put on a pedestal within the surfing community as the ultimate ideal. And the thing I found quite interesting is really that doesn't seem to have been true for most of his lifetime. And that that seems to have been something where, again, outside influences have aligned him and his reputation into, into being the person that we now think of him. Yeah, I think that's true. But I, but I, a, a couple things on that. It's certainly in the early days, mm-hmm. I mean, Duke's influence on surfing was was almost, it was almost hand to hand. Yeah, I mean, he was like he was a Johnny Appleseed. I mean, when he went to Australia, you know, he carves his own board and then leaves yeah. it there, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, youngsters sort of literally pick it up and start surfing yeah. on it, and so. You've got that early, and he did this in Southern California and California up and down the coast. Same thing. So he really was an influencer in that regard. Yeah. The connection I make also, by the way, with, uh, with the Olympic swimming is the Olympics gave him international fame. So if, if he doesn't have that international fame, then he doesn't become sort of the godfather of, of mm-hmm. surfing because the, the Olympic fame enables him 
you know, to travel the world and to get invited to Australia mm-hmm. and, and yeah. so on and so forth. But but I think I think you're right that that there were uh, there were as, as you mentioned, like with Chemo McVeigh towards the end of Duke's life, there were people who sort of pushed him, prodded him, put him front and yeah. center as a symbol and as a great name. I guess in a way, you know, uh, George Freeth, who was Duke's friend, and and they both had a very similar set, and they were both good swimmers, but both very good surfers. And George Freeth introduced a lot of people to to surfing in California and and in the mainland, but is a largely forgotten figure. He never had that, you know. Although their their Appleseed influence in in the sort of in the in the nineteen twenties was very much very similar. Duke's reputation grew yeah. Yeah. with with that promotion in the in the fifties and the sixties to become you know where he is the figurehead for surfing. Right. Well, I th- I think that's a great point. And George Freeth, uh, very in- interesting figure, and and very much a a seminal figure in the history of surfing and the development and export of surfing yeah. out of Hawaii, and, and 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 as you say, pretty much obscure and. Part of that, unfortunately, is because yes. he dies mm-hmm. so young. You know, he, he, he dies in whatever, 1918, 1919. And, you know, by that, I mean, at that time, I mean, there's only, you know, you could, there's maybe a couple hundred people surfing yeah, around absolutely. the world type of thing, yeah. you know. Um, so, you know, Duke is still there in the 50s and 60s when, when you know, when surfing really sort of launches, when, 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 when surfing seeps into the popular culture and, becomes a you know boards are affordable and and there's leisure time after the war and so on and so forth so all of those factors sort of line up and the fact that i mean it is incredible the fact that duke is yeah. still there you know i guess as well a, a big part of you know his legacy is is because he was so charismatic you know he just comes across as this incredibly nice person there they're all sitting on the boats going across to the, you know, the, the Olympic teams are all on the boats going across and he's sitting there entertaining everybody by playing ukulele and having to be, you know, in the middle of defending his Olympic championships, having to be woken up from a nap sleeping under the bandstand. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah, no, he, he, by all accounts, and again, this is, this is, uh, I mean, there, there are some film clips here and there and, 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 and some audio actually that we were able to find. By all accounts, he was this very gracious and, and humble person who, you know, made people feel at ease. And and he, because he was so famous and and had uh, Olympic glory, you know, he met kings and and noble people. He you know hobnobbed yeah. with movie stars, and yet his his upbringing is is totally humble and you know, working class. So he was sort of able to straddle all of those worlds. He was someone who was very, very at ease with who he was. And uh, I, I think that, that when reporters would come to do a story on him, in the beginning years, it was very different type of journalism, but they would, you know, put words in his mouth and, you know, try to build up a story around this guy who didn't yeah. really like to talk. Later on, it was it was more apparent. You know, there's better journalism, better writers, and they they were able to just understand that hey, he wasn't a big talker, but but he just you know you felt at ease mm-hmm. and yeah. you felt comfortable. Uh, very 
Very cool. I, I, and actually, just going back to what I was saying, the the um, I love the fact that that he was woken from from sleeping so often before competition. I it, it, it's I've never heard of of any other athlete being quite so relaxed going into such high end competition. Into an that Olympic event. That, that, yeah, you know, or, you know, the world class sporting event that they can go and you know nearly miss the start of their race because they're sleeping. Have you encountered that in any any other athletes? Well, let, let me let me just say, can you imagine how intimidating that must have been for the competition to see this? Well, guy? yeah, oh, talk about a mind game, <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, my gosh, you know, they're all wired up, and he just sort of strolls up and goes, "Hey, hey, guys!" Oh, here I race. am, ready to race. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there are. I mean, look, elite athletes all have uh, you know different ways to prepare for the game. I mean, I've read of you know football players today who. You know, we'll go through their warm-ups, and then, you know, they'll take a 15-minute nap in, in right. the locker room. So, I mean, I, I, I've, seen, I've heard of this, and, and it, but in, in this case, it was very – it was remarked upon, and uh, it was different and special. And, yeah, I think, I think there was something to that mind game that he was playing as well. Uh, am I correct in saying that Duke is uh, still the oldest gold medal swimmer? In the Olympics, he's still got the the record for the oldest guy to win a win a gold medal. I, you know, I've 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 read that too. I I would have to double check because you know th- there's so many relay races these days. There may have been somebody who who won a gold medal um, on a relay race, but in an individual, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that uh, that record is. Uh possibly going to be broken this year in the Olympics by Phelps, which I think that's pretty cool that it stood for that long. Right. No, amazing, huh? Amazing. And I, you know, I try to point out, I, I actually think his silver medal in 1924 uh, is more valuable than his gold medal in 1920 at the Olympics. And by that, I mean, in 1920, basically, I mean, let's face it, unfortunately, because of World War One. Uh, the, there was the competition was was nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Australia, unfortunately, you know, had lost mo- most of their best swimmers. Most of Europe, same way. Germany was banned from the Olympics in 1920. I think mm-hmm. Russia was too. So really, it was sort of an all-American meet, and and you know, Duke prevailed. Um, 24, the competition's fierce, uh, not just with Johnny Weissmuller, but there were others. But now Duke is basically almost 34, and he gets a silver medal to, you know, the greatest swimmer, you know, until um, Mark Spitz. So I, I, I value in some ways Duke's silver medal performance in 24 over the 1920 gold medal. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. I saw that, that the, the house that Duke moved into because he, he was sort of gifted this house by the Hawaiian people. He lived there for a while. So after his retirement from sport, he became really quite a, a big civic figure. You know, he's the sheriff for, for a long time. And then he moved into a, a house on Diamond Head, which I noticed has recently gone on the market for six point something million. I saw that too. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I think I, 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 they bought that house. He and his wife bought that house, I'm going to say 1941. Yeah. And and I at the time, they got a... They got a five thousand dollar loan to buy that yeah. house. Wow! <laughs> I wonder how he'd feel about it going for uh, six and a half million now. Right? Uh, yeah, he I, I, he could use a cut of that, right? 
Exactly. I, I, I feel he's earned it. I feel he's earned it. <laughs> David, exactly. thank you so much for uh, for talking to us. We're, we're going to have to wrap up because. Uh, well, first of all, it was my pleasure, Harry and Asher. Thanks for you know taking the time to ask intelligent questions and to you know get beyond just the headlines. So I, I really appreciate that. So fantastic. Th- thanks for your time, guys. That's Please. great. Thank David, you, David. So thank much. you so much. Really appreciate okay. it. It was a pleasure thank you talking so much. to you. Pleasure talking oh. and uh, goodbye. You're listening to the Surf Simply Podcast. So we're going to return to our Superhero of Surf segment. Again, we've had quite a few of these prepared over the last couple of months, and the surf news has taken up a large chunk of the show. We haven't really been able to dive in. But the very sad news this week that Brock Little passed away from cancer this week. Mm -hmm. We felt that it was time for a return to the Superhero of Surf. Yeah, us at the Surf Simply Podcast as well as the collective surf world, were extremely saddened by the passing of Brock Little. So yeah, it seemed fitting that this episode's superhero surf would be him because he was just that, a superhero. He was one of our culture's characters who was absolutely larger than life. Brock was born March 17th, 1967 in Napa Valley, but he moved to Haleiwa on the North Shore at age three. He began surfing at seven and had a pretty decent amateur career but really found his niche in surfing Waimea Bay and the other big wave arenas. He was mm-hmm. a local at Mavericks in the 90s, spent a lot of time surfing Tota Santos, and pretty much just changed the game in big wave surfing. In the late 80s and early 90s, Brock was the dominant force at Waimea Bay. There were other guys pushing the limits of big wave surfing at the time, like Derek Doner and Mark Fu, but no one did it quite like Brock Little. He had that calm, slack-arm style that was just reeked of cool. And in an era of big wave surfing that had the overly macho image and kind of a a weird thing about it, uh, about spirituality in the ocean, Brock did it just because it was his idea to have fun. He loved the the feeling of being scared. He liked pushing through that boundary. And yeah, just an amazing guy. Uh, He placed fourth in the ADI Cow in 1986 at just 19 years old. Mm Mm-hmm. And the other guys ahead of him were Clyde Aikau, Mark Fu, Ken Bradshaw, who were all in their mid-30s. He placed second in the 1990 Eddie to Keone Dowing, but he pretty much stole the show in that event. Did you see the opening ceremony for this year's Eddie? Because Brock Little was there as part of the ceremony. He was yeah. one of the invitees yeah, he was in there. to attend, and, and he didn't look really ill. And then watching the, the video interview that done with him just a few weeks a few weeks ago. He looked pretty rough. Yeah, I mean, he went downhill very, very, very quick, quickly. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was really sad. In all the Eddie's opening ceremony stuff, too, his two waves from the 1990 Eddie Aikau were, were the most frequently shown one. So he yeah. had that, that one just iconic wave where he's airdropping into just a closeout set at the bay where looking at it, there's just no way he was going to make that wave. But he just put his chin down and went anyway, which is pretty incredible. And he had that huge barrel kind of under the ledge at the bay in a time when not really many people were pulling in there. So he, he really did change the way that that place was surfed. And if he wasn't cool enough already with his big wave exploits, he, he went on to have an award-winning career as a Hollywood stuntman. Yeah, he was in, wasn't he in Tropic Thunder? Yeah, yeah. Tropic Thunder in, in Pearl Harbor. And I, I think as well, wasn't Brock one of the, the, one of the strapped crews, one of the first guys to start towing with Laird and mm-hmm. uh, Brian Kialoha? Derek Doner? Derek Doner, yeah, all of those guys. I think Brock was part of that yeah, crew as well, was. wasn't he? Yeah, he's he's one of the first guys to pull in at, at Jaws, too. That's cool. There's that old footage of him just pulling in behind the peak on that classic ball, and he's just like, oh, gosh, getting worked by that wave would just be the biggest nightmare. Yeah, very, very impressive. Yeah, his, his le- legacy is obviously huge. Uh, he was the inspiration for the full 90s crew of Hawaiian Chargers. 
from Shane Dorian to Todd Chesser, uh, even the other guys like Kelly Slater. They all held him as just a larger-than-life figure. As I mentioned before, there was an interview that Hawaii TV did with him. Just mm-hmm. be- I think it was a few days before he died, and you know you can see he looks really, really ill. And uh, even in that interview, he comes across. You know, he's he's smiling from ear to ear. He's talking positively, and he doesn't have that look that sometimes terminally ill people do, yeah. where he's putting on a brave face. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really does just look like he he, he says, and it, and it feels genuine. Like, I've had a good life. I've done it all for fun, and it's been so fun. He's packed and, about as much into 48 years as you could. Yeah, and I mean, uh, having having been really close to someone and, and nursed someone in my family through that, mm. I, I really know how hard it is to have that attitude. I mean, well, it's hard for a lot of people to have that attitude when you've got everything and when you're fit and mm-hmm. healthy. Yeah. But to have that attitude when you're, when you're sort of at that stage of terminal illness is just such an incredible thing really amazing i mean yeah. i i have so much more admiration for him even after just watching that interview and and anyone who wants to see it i'm sure it's on if you just type brock lill into youtube you'll find it listener emails partly i guess as a response to our last episode but also just part of the regular flow of listener questions we have had a, a ton of emails over the last week or so yeah we got a lot of people getting in touch who who wrote to me about the Kelly episode and then we ended up getting into conversations about other things. Yeah. And I think we've got about three episodes worth of listener emails to get Plenty. through. Yeah. So uh, I don't, we're not going to get to them this week, but are we going to do a listener email show at some point in the near future? Harry? Yeah, I think maybe we'll, we'll try and do a little, little deeper dive into some of those. The, the, thank you so much, everybody, for your questions and do keep them coming. We will try and get to them in, in a future episode. One of the particularly interesting listener emails that came in was actually from a listener called Rob Makepeace. And this is a bit of a throwback to an episode from last August, but mm-hmm. we, we were talking about the wave garden in Wales and, and wave pools, and we were sort of trying to work out what would be a reasonable amount to charge. And we were asking our listeners if anyone had ever worked out like how much you pay per wave when you go on a surf trip by the time yeah. you've allowed for flights, hotels, you know, how many waves you're actually going to get, how many days of swell you're going to get, all that kind of thing. Anyway, Rob Makepeace worked it all out. And I'm not going to go into it all now. It's really interesting and a whole other feature all in itself. But we are going to talk about that in a future episode. And I'd love it if any other listeners want to work it out and send it in so that we've got a little bit more data to work with. Yeah, yeah. Rob, I really appreciate your attention to spreadsheets. I it's love. That's a, a well-made spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then just two very quick corrections as well to that that we can just cover. Ben Kim wrote to say that despite your excellent imitation, Rue, that Taj's parents are actually American from California. Oh, um, I, I realised that. I just, but it's classic. so fun doing an Aussie accent. Yeah, that that is true. And sorry, Taj's dad. Okay, finally this week, then the what to watch section. There has been a ton of footage coming out of Snapper. Uh, Lots and lots of the Pro Tour are there getting ready. The contest season is going to get underway in the second week of March. Fingers crossed that bank stays good. Yeah, and the the bank that's kind of running all the way from Snapper Rocks down to Kira looks so, so good at the moment. So fingers crossed that's going to stay the way it is. There was a great video of a lot of the female uh, tour surfers getting ready. Stephanie Gilmore looks like she's back on form and ready to go. That's looking great. There was a couple of fantastic clips of 
Joel and Mick and a couple of other people just really tearing that bank to pieces. There's a nice video that came out as well of Dylan Graves in Bocas del Toro in Panama. Yes. Which I, is right next door. Yeah, but, and you I've know, never geographically, been there. And, and well, in I've fact, never been there, no. Jessie's on her way there next week, I think. Ah, that's She's, right. Yeah, Jessie's going over there for a, for a week or so of surfing. And I'm going skiing for the first time ever, listeners. Me too. I'm going to be a different location. I'm going to be snow plowing down the baby slope very slowly with a pillow duct taped to my front and back. <laughs> that will be fun. <laughs> the other video that I thought you guys should definitely have a look at is Honolulu Bay. It got really, really good a couple of weeks ago. And it I've actually I've, I've just finished reading Barbarian Days and William Finnegan's obviously pretty keen on Honolulu, Honolulu Bay. Bay. He is you know, that was one of the, the stops that really changed his life and changed the direction of his life and and nearly ended his life well and nearly ended his yeah. life yeah but ha- having read his account of surfing it and watching the waves in this video which um, i'm not gonna be able to link to in the show notes it's a surfer magazine video so i'll just put a link to where you can watch it god it looks fun i really want to try surfing that wave it, I, it's one of those waves that i think when you're watching someone surfing it really well they make it look a lot easier than it is. I think it's really unpredictable and sectiony, and mm-hmm. uh, oh, I'm sure, yeah, difficult, really difficult to put together. Whereas when you watch it, someone surfing it well, it looks like everything's just happening at the right time. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the show. And again, any comments, any feedback, please do get in touch with us. Podcast at Surf Simply will find us. We have to go because we have a boat waiting to take us out for a little sunset surf. Very exciting indeed. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that's all for now. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.